Welcome to the Networking with Plants in the Anthropocene podcast. Today we are joined by two incredible authors, um, Natalie Lawrence and Paco Calvo. They have both recently written a book together called Planta Sapiens, Unmasking Plant Intelligence. It's released in the UK as of now, and there is a Italian translation coming out in May, and it will be released in the US um, in March. So welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. I was wondering if you could start by introducing yourselves. Paco, why don't you go first? Okay, well, just first one thing, the Italian translation already came out. So just- Oh, sorry. Just, <laughs> just, no, no, that's okay. Just for the Italian listeners, they know that it's already out there. It came out the 25th of October. So it's the Spanish translation, the one coming out in May, right? Yes, thank you. Sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, that's fine, that's fine. But we haven't good, kept good, news, good, good news for the Italians. They, they can start reading it. So yeah, uh, well, I, I'm a professor of philosophy of science at the University of Murcia, Spain, and, and I run the Minimal Intelligence Lab. And when you get to read the book, uh, you'll see that we talk quite a lot about, about the stuff we do at the Minimal Intelligence Lab. And as an academic, well, I, uh, of course, my interest is, is plant intelligence, and we tackle it from a number of fronts, like, like uh, especially because I'm, I'm, as I said, a philosopher of science. So that's kind of awkward, but, but uh, precisely one of the key messages in the book is that, is that we do need to try that angle and not just look at plants from a biology or from a plant biology perspective. So that's, that's kind of the trick to, 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 to play the outsider's role. And um, I'm a, a, a freelance writer and illustrator. Um, I live in London and um, I have a background in natural sciences, specifically zoology. And um, I also have a, a PhD in history and philosophy of science as well. So me and Paco have some have some overlap in understanding in, in that area. Um, and uh, it's been an amazing project to work on. So it's it's been wonderful shifting my own um, perceptions from a, a more zoo centric um, attitudes to um, understanding plants in a new way through through working on this. Yeah, it's been One, quite an experience, eh? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's quite an experience. We haven't met, we haven't seen each other in person since we met. I mean, can you believe it? We've been working on this on Zoom or Skype. So that's been quite a challenge, actually. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been uh, like nearly three years now, will be two years. Wow, um, that's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm a little biased because my dissertation advisor is a philosopher of science, so I definitely resonate with a lot of the work in the text because I'm working in environmental ethics and various intersections, but working with people from philosophy and different subfields. So yeah, I loved that part of the text, um, how multidisciplinary it is. Um, to begin with, one of the first questions that we often ask on the podcast um, to kind of get us started is, what is your favorite plant and why? Guess hmm. <laughs> what Paco's is. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well uh, I, guess, I guess I should say climbers, vines in general. Um, you'll see, I mean... If, in the book, we speak quite a lot about, about vines and how they reach out and try to, you know, grasp onto a pole or a host or a support somewhere they can get hold of and go up there and do photosynthesis and do their business. And, and I find them intriguing. 
Now, now of course, vines and climbers are, you know, it's, it's far too many different species. They are all over the place doing their different things very differently. So we need to look at them uh, very precisely or very personally. We need to channel into them. Um, maybe these guys doing this, some other plant might be doing something completely different somewhere else. So they have different needs because they might be uh, inhabiting different uh, local environments. But, you know, uh, uh, vines, at first they intrigued me for one reason, and it's the fact that uh, they, in a sense, if you think about it, they really cannot afford to, to go astray. So they need to make sure they, they are on target because of the way they behave, which is by not by means of locomotion or they don't displace from one place to another, they grow to reach their targets. The way they do it is by, by a trade of, find, they find a trade off in between the amount of energy resources devoted to, to, to growing fast versus having a solid base, right? So of course they need to say, hey, I cannot waste metabolism energy resources into having a nice big solid base. I'd rather go fast and grab this guy and train around and get up there, right? So that means that because they have to play or bet on that, uh, on that hand, they really need to behave in a pretty smart way, which is behave truly anticipatorily to make sure they don't go astray, right? Now, within, uh, now more recently, actually, I'm now working on this uh, project proposal on legumes. And, and legumes, so climbing beans is one of the plant models we use in the book, we report, we talk about in the book, but this belongs to the family of the legumes. And in my heart of hearts, I've got like really in love with them all, all legumes, regardless of how good they are at climbing. Because now I'm thinking of the, uh, now I'm going to say a, a technical word, nictinastic movements, also like the leaf folding behavior, right? So, so if you think of those leaf folding behaviors, like, like they follow the day-night cycle, right? So they, they fold their leaves at night, uh, get them up, ready to photosynthesis next day, okay, Fa facing the sun. And, and, and I've lately come to think that, that that's really a new door that opens into the inner life of plants mm. by seeing how we all tick to the same clock like how we all resonate to the same type of information, animals, bacteria, fungi, plants, whatever. So legumes are, are nice in that respect. I like to see how they go to bed. I've actually got a, a, a couple of calatheas behind me, which are <laughs> about, about to do the same. <laughs> They're about to fold up their leaves and uh, turn in for the night with the, the early sundown. Um, I think mine's probably a little bit more mainstream in, in that it's um I, I have a I have a special love for for beech trees and um the spaces that they create, which are wonderful to be in. Um I've always whenever I've had um sort of mental processing to do, I've always gone to hang out with some trees and I've always found that it's it's helped a lot. And I think quite a lot of people feel the same way. Um and obviously a lot of what they're doing is going on is happening underground so we can't see it and a lot of, a lot of their com the, the complexity of their behaviors is occurring out of sight um not that it's mm. easy to see what plants are doing most of the time anyway as we say in the book because um it's happening at a time scale that's totally different from our perceptions um so i think that's that's probably my answer it was it was an interesting question actually because i wasn't sure i had one. i was thinking i don't not sure if i have one or not um, <laughs> 
It is hard to answer, especially like if you work with plants, there are just so many fascinating yeah. plants. Um, and besides your work, a quick question about kind of your context, kind of growing up as a human in this world, um, what was your interaction with plants um, kind of from a young age? Were they something that you were aware of or were they something that you became aware of later on in life? Well, I, I'd love to make up some story as to how aware I was at an early age, but I, I would be lying. <laughs> so, so I've got to, I, I mean, I, I've got to tell you the truth is that uh, um, I, in fact, actually it's easy to visualize um, the type of landscapes I, I was, I grew up in, because if you're familiar with, you know, Clint Eastwood, Spaghetti Westerns, type of, you know, 70s or early 70s. And um, that's, that's where I grew up in the southeast of Spain. Actually, it's not that it was like those landscapes, it's that it was those places. So it's where, where those films were shot. So that was the Spaghetti Westerns um, uh, area where all those films were shot in, in the 60s and 70s. And my school was actually in the countryside. It was in one of those places that they were shooting those films. So I remember when we would go out of school, uh, we wouldn't walk out into the patio, into the garden. It was not fenced. It was into the middle of nowhere. And we would get to see um, cowboys riding horses and uh, so like shooting the films, right? So, so from there, it's easy to imagine the type of plants I was close to, right? Cacti, succulents. Uh, that type of thing, because this is the if you go to the map and check it out, it's the subdesert. It's the most, it's it's the driest subdesertic area in in the whole of Europe. So it's the closest to to North Africa, um, and my early memories uh, are actually about about the cacti that we used to play with. Um, I think that's what I meant about not really being aware of plants, but using them as kids would do and we would just you know get to play with them and whatever and you know the spines darts using them as darts and all that sort of thing or chewing them like the sore grass chewing them and you know that's that type of thing but the, but i've got to confess that in those days uh, couldn't have you know crossed my mind anything like oh I'm using this plant as a resource I'm exploiting it as a mere resource I'm not being aware of its agency of course that came way later <laughs> actually I would have been <laughs> worried about myself if I had come with to that idea that, <laughs> that early in life right so it was much better that I only got to think about those things once I was into you know into college or whatever Otherwise, it would have been weird. You <laughs> want an existential crisis as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had a very different upbringing. I grew, I grew up in the middle of London. Um, so the access I had to, to plants in general was either in, in, in the garden or in um, places like Hampstead Heath, because it is quite, quite a green city, as, as, as busy as it is. Um, and so I would go for, I'd go for walks, and I fancied myself as a bit of sort of amateur naturalist when I was a kid. So I would, I would collect plants and press them and um, create those kind of herbarium pages that wow. you see in kind of early, modern, sort of early collections and sort of label them dutifully. Um, but I do remember always loving, especially when I traveled and I was aware of the, the effect, as much as they can be background to most people, I was aware of the effect that the plant shapes and smells in your immediate environment have on your perception. So you go somewhere different and you realize there's a sense of kind of 
alien, there's this alien quality to the environment around you, which partly comes from entirely different leaf shapes, different growing structures, different um, different flowers, um, and and different smells and different so different different patterns of of existence of the of the plants around you, which is actually much has much more of an effect than um, the animals in the environment really because they're so much more present. Um, so I was. I was sort of dimly aware of of um, plants, but obviously I also didn't. <laughs> I didn't wasn't thinking well, about. But 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 her life in London that that sounds to me really Darwinian, right? I mean, naturalist. I mean, the, the way Natalie, <laughs> you know, in, in London uh, near near down. <laughs> I did have a seed pod. I've still got my seed pod collection, actually. <laughs> you see, I did you have see. a thing for seed pods. Very, they were very um, very interesting and uh, and attractive. I think so. Shells and seed pods. <laughs> <laughs> sort of equivalent that's wonderful nice. um it's so interesting to hear kind of like the wide spectrum and different approaches mm. towards plants Absolutely. Um, and completely different ecosystems it's it's all fascinating well, coming from completely different ends i mean it's mm. really amazing yeah definitely we have a wide variety of listeners. Um, some are academics, some are plant practitioners, some are artists, and some are students. Um, as someone who has a wide variety of different people in her life, um, and I'm excited to share this book with them, I was just wondering, how would you best summarize the thesis and work that this book is off offering? Hmm. <laughs> that's, 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 that's not, not a bad question. That's not a bad question. <laughs> Actually, it's a pretty good one. <laughs> well, you know, no, it's not that easy. I mean, uh, you know, I, I wish I could simply say, look, uh, the main thesis is that plants are literally sapient. So plant are sapiens. So it's not something metaphorical. We do mean it, literally. So plants are intelligent and we are stupid, I would say, in a sense. No, no, I mean it. I mean it because in, a, in the sense that regardless of the type of background, whatever, there is something that we just don't quite get. Mm. Right. So 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 to me, actually, the main thesis is not even that plants are smart is that in principle, it makes perfect sense that they are. Because I like to insist that this is an open empirical question. So this is science. So I don't need to, you don't need to believe me. We need, we really need to join, to team up together and do the science, right? Mm. So, but, but, but it would be really awkward if they weren't mm, smart in the sense of, hey, there's got something really intelligent they are doing, you know, to be here, to keep passing their genes, you know, uh, there is something we are missing, right? So, so the downside or the other side, uh, another way to approach the issue is like, yes, I mean, definitely, definitely. We have all the theoretical scaffolding, the framework to, to, to tackle the issue, to go to the lab, to go to the outdoors, to do the natural, the ecological observations, to raise the questions, right? So that's already in place. We can, we can, we can do that. Uh, and that's the project we are into right so the project is to 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 go and, and ask those questions and, and do whatever has to be done scientifically i mean right so but the other another way to put it um and i think it it's it, it addresses uh, 
any reader from, from any background whatsoever is to realize that we are not that special. Uh, uh, because, because in a sense, some of, mm, when I talk to people which are a bit more skeptical, they somehow think that, that uh, planta sapiens is sort of beefing them up to make them look like us or something like, oh, the, I mean, sapiens by default is homo sapiens, right? So it's mm -hmm. us. And then they say, well, if, the, if plants are smart, what does it mean that they resemble us? And to me, what's really intriguing is that once you get into to think about these ideas, like, like you know, as you see in the book, like, like we take you through all these chapters and, and little by little, uh, uh, um, all the challenges related to, to not just to the way we train our eye to see them, to appreciate their behavior, but but also how we how how easily is to get lost in in the in the in the way we we are having those discussions in the science within the scientific community, right? Uh, all the way to ethical issues, to whatever, right? So, so um, to me, to me, the real, the real uh, take-home message is that if this thesis is correct, if if plants are sapient in a sense, yet to be fully spelled out, that means that we need to rethink uh, why we are so sure, or we have all these these prejudices, and think that that we are in a sense, special in some sense that I still don't get, right? So we are, so plants are definitely intelligent. We just need to understand how, in what sense they are intelligent. And we are not that special. We are just one other species in the tree of life. So, yeah, let's see, let's see, let, let's see what unites us rather than what differences all of us. I suppose it's a, it's a shift, isn't it? From looking at trying to reinforce some traditional notion of humans being separate and different from the rest mm -hmm. of the natural world, using intelligence and consciousness to um, thinking actually capacities like intelligence are adaptive qualities, which have developed for a reason. And different organisms are going to have different versions of this because of their different ecological conditions and, and different um, evolutionary histories. So it's a it's a kind of it's a shift in how intelligence is being used from the traditional kind of differentiating um, perspective, um, and and looking at it in a much more nuanced and and diverse way. Mm. So wonder... it's not just about plants; it's about shifting our, our our perspective on how all organisms work. Absolutely, on everything. <laughs> we need to change our mind on everything, literally. <laughs> yeah. And as a result, shifting the way we then view our own as well. It will give us a much deeper and richer understanding of our own intelligence and our own the way our own minds work if we can take this broader perspective, which will encompass much more diversity and, and, and many more different types and functions of intelligence and, and, and sentience. Hmm. Definitely. I'm wondering... As people who have experience in philosophy, because sometimes philosophy seems so conservative when it comes to opening up inquiry beyond human beings, like it just tends to be very anthropocentric. Mm -hmm. um, how has your experience with philosophy when you're asking these questions been? Oh, uh, I... No, actually, I, I, I'm surprised. I think they are pretty open. Um, they are very, very eager to know what is it. Because you see, I set up my lab in a, in a department of philosophy. So it's, it's within the faculty of the building. So a faculty of arts. And 
And we have the labs where we do the time lapse and the electrophysiological studies. We have that in the plant biology unit. So I'm sort of like walking in, you know, in the two buildings, so I'm back and forth. So I, I, I get I get to chat and to interact with, with uh, faculty in, and students and visitors in the philosophy department and in the plant biology department. And surprise, surprise, philosophers are way more open than plant biologists uh, in general. And, um, and you know why I think, well, actually, also people coming from the arts, not just philosophers, but people coming from the arts, from the humanities in general, but also from, you know, engineers or people with a background in robotics or AI. So those guys are way open to say, yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, people in AI are glad to speak about, about artificial intelligence uh, or, or, you know, robots. A different issue is that they are obsessed with making humanoids, right? So human-like robots. And then we want to actually, that's part also in, in, the, in, in the last chapter, right? We speak about, about how to make plant-inspired robots, right? So, so I would say that um, um, it's not really a surprise that, that the people who are more um, skeptical or have a more reserved attitude are the ones coming from biology. And, and there is a reason for that is because uh, since they have mm, or they regard themselves as the ones that have the right, intellectually speaking, in terms of the discipline they come from, to raise the issues, the questions, and to try to answer them, they can't quite picture that not the answers, but that different questions can be raised from different corners, from out of biology. And that's one to me one of the most important issues. Like I, I talking to students and, and lay people, and actually when I give talks to, especially to artists, I love the I love the attitude of artists and philosophers as well. But but generally speaking, right, because they are way more open to 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 explore because because uh, they they think yeah sure why why shouldn't we be allowed to enter the discussion. And more importantly, to, 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 to change the type of questions we are raising, right? So if, if, if we are trying to understand plant intelligence, one, again, going back to the main thesis of the book, is that it is something that we cannot do uh, by looking at the physiology. So, so, of course, we need to know to understand plant physiology and to know the nuts and bolts, the processes involved within the plant body. But thinking that intelligence reduces to that, or that we can make, and that we can understand plant behavior or plant intelligence out of physiology itself, is the very mistake, and that's what many people don't get in orthodox plant biology. That's why when you, if I say those things to philosophers, they say, "Hey, look, if we are going to discuss plant intelligence, the same as if we are going to discuss non-human animal intelligence or any other form of life." Uh, this is a question to be raised from within psychology, from within the cognitive sciences. And in so far as philosophy is one subdiscipline belonging to the cognitive sciences, um, uh, it's, 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 the role it can play is clear cut. So we, we, we have something to say as to how the questions are being raised and what sort of reasoning and logical patterns of, of, of response are to be followed to avoid falling prey of many fallacies and, and, and 
you know, all these things. So yeah, I would say I would say people are pretty much open. I, I, actually, I've got to say that I've been lucky, very lucky, to be able to set up the lab in a in a in a philosophy department. So I always thank. Well, actually, that's in the acknowledgments in the book. I thank the the, the dean and the head of the department because. Anyway, anywhere I would go, I say, hey, excuse me, would you mind if I set up a lab in the, they would say, what? Go, go off. I mean, do, do that in a, in, a, in a biology department. I mean, here we are philosophers, straight philosophers. So I, I really appreciate that they are not straight, that straight. <laughs> do you think it might also be that um, those outside of plant sciences are, you know, if you talk about sort of people working on AI, robotics, et cetera, philosophers, they're, they're thinking about um, systems rather than specifics. Mm. A lot more. They're thinking about um, sort of in a way function more than form. Whereas if you work in plant sciences, you're, you're very focused on the specifics and Absolutely. the details of specific systems. And, yeah. and one of the shifts that we're arguing for in Plato Sapiens is that you need to look at function and the commonalities between functions rather than sort of the, the details of morphology and physiology. So yeah. I think disciplines in which there is that kind of higher level of thinking are probably more open to these kind of ideas than those in which the detailed nuts and bolts and sort of concretizing everything is um, is is the, is the primary objective. Yeah. Well, actually, Natalie, that that point she's speaking on is like I mean, think of the the very notion of a neuron, right? Like the one of the very first uh, rejections comes from saying, "Hey, plants have no neurons. Mm -hmm. If neurons are needed for intelligence, I mean." What, how can you claim or defend the idea that plants can be intelligent if they have no neurons? Well, that's what Natalie is getting at, because functionally speaking and not structurally speaking, plant cells fire. So the 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 action potential, the spike when a plant cell is 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 firing a spike of voltage, is doing the very same thing that the animal neuronal cell. So functionally speaking, they are putting that electrical activity to the service of coordinating over behavior regardless what's of thing is how some of your detractors have um have uh, sort of both both denied that you could get any kind of sort of integrative function from this electrical activity and then also gone on to produce papers to describe the electrical activity <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah no, it's, it's really amazing so yeah absolutely um... <laughs> do you do you think that there's a need for or does it even make sense for it to kind of push for a paradigm change in some of the plant biology circles? Or do you think kind of going off of Natalie's um, fascinating analysis that like there are kind of these different pieces of the puzzle that some are more concerned with this overall systems and function as opposed mm. to like looking at the individual parts? Um, do you think that there needs to be a paradigm change? Or do you mm. think that if you could convince people that don't agree with you currently that plants are conscious or that that would birth mm. a paradigm change or shift. Yeah, yeah well, I, I think we have an, an idealized uh, picture of what, uh, you know, Kuhnian idealized picture of what paradigm shifts are like. And then that's, I think that's dangerous because that, that would imply that we kind of, okay, you know, you are doing something, know. you know, some normal science, which means we are doing orthodox, raising orthodox questions, doing, you know, 
puzzle solving, uh, boring mm, details of, of within the same paradigm. And only when things go wrong, only when we are in trouble, when anomalies start to accumulate, then we say, okay, there is a crisis, then there is a revolution. So the, the, the standard story they, they, they tell you in school. And I don't think that's quite the way it works. I think that in parallel, all these different schools and different threats are, are progressing. And many times interacting with each other, and many times in parallel, unawares of each other. And, um, and I, don't think that, I, I don't think there is any control as to the evolution of those dynamics. I think it's whatever has to happen will happen mm. one way or another. Now, one thing that is true, uh, and, and here, I mean, if, if, if you recall, actually, if you recall the acknowledgements or the introduction, uh, we were, we were, Natalie and I were very, very, very careful to, to, to actually say, look, um, we are not trying to convince those that are already convinced or to turn the blind eye to the criticisms of the skeptics. We are trying to convey a message that we think it's useful to them all. Um, and there is, there is, there is um, another way to look at this because I, one thing that I, I, I think we need to make some exercise of self-criticism because it's very easy to play a victim or to self-victimize and say, oh, the establishment, they don't understand me, right? And, and, and I think we need to, I mean, if it is true that we are talking past each other many, many times. So in between orthodox plant biology and the stuff that we do, for example, what I do in my lab, if I could go to the plant biology building every morning, I'm sure there is always some conversation with some guy that, that, that that's, we are talking past each other. Like, for example, I told you the example of, of my favorite plant. I, I mentioned legumes because they fold their leaves and I like to say they go to bed. Or, mm -hmm. or if you see, this is not a spoiler because we say this in the very beginning, putting plants to sleep. That's the title of the chapter, right? So this is not a spoiler. Putting plants to sleep. So if you can put plants to sleep, if we can talk about plants going to bed, certainly these people are going to say, you see, Paco, you were doing metaphors. You were speaking metaphorically. So what do you mean to say that you through, you actually mean planta sapiens in the very same way that we mean homo sapiens? And at the same time, you tell me that you put them to sleep, that they go to bed. So if there is some misunderstanding here as to the way we are using the terminology, I am glad to assume the burden of proof. So I think we cannot simply ignore those critics and say, hey, they just don't get it. So if there is going to be a paradigm shift, that paradigm has to involve education. And I don't mean just the type of education that we need to educate kids from school in a different way, which, of course, we, we have to. Um, um, but, but also in the way we are discussing these issues with our colleagues in the scientific community. Because if you are saying something which which to the mainstream uh, plant science approach sounds like really awkward, maybe you need to make an, an effort to, to, to convey the message in such a way that it doesn't sound that awkward. And the burden of proof is on us. So we need to say, hey, if I say, hey, plants can learn, plants can memorize, plants can make decisions, solve problems, uh, whatever, anticipate. We were talking about anticipating the future. I cannot simply say that. I, ha I have at least 
to be able to communicate the type or, or discuss the type of empirical hypothesis to be tested that would throw light upon that possibility. You don't need to believe me because, because I try to convince you. We need to sit and talk science and do the science. I think the um, the going to bed uh, example gives a uh, sort of encapsulates the issue really well because actually it a lot of the problems around this are semantic. They are about the meanings of words and the agreed meanings of words. There's been, as we've detailed little in the book, we try to keep it at a minimum. Um, there's, there's been a lot of a lot of debate, but because if you think it's, I mean, the the issue about going to bed is is the same as the sort of the electrical activity that happens in plants. Going to bed. For a plant folding its leaves up is the same functional equivalent as us going to bed and going to sleep so we use the term you can use the term going to bed in a flippant way but it's a similar it's a similar kind of way of talking about action potentials going down vascular tissue and action potentials traveling along neurons so it's you we need to shift the kind of the immediate objections that can be raised to language which is designed around an animal system and a human system which which obviously clusters ideas around classes all the levels of the idea you know going to a physical bed going to sleep shutting mm. down mm. um we need to break apart those clusters to some degree and, and reallocate the meaning so that we have words that function at those higher levels um and allow us to describe organisms shutting down to some degree to process mm. for the night you know that kind of thing so yeah. i think the semantic issue is a really important one yeah. and that's almost the, the biggest shift that needs to happen because as as, as um, Paco has shown me, it's um, actually a lot of the, the. It's not necessarily a paradigm shift; it's a paradigm opening. A lot of the um, the models in cognitive sciences that have been developed for animals are the ones that we're going to need to migrate over in order to be able to access these phenomena. So we don't need to dispense with the paradigm. We need to um, open the paradigm up to be more flexible mm. and to mm. um, be applied in more areas, especially in, in things like the cognitive sciences. Yeah, well, look, I mean, a great example of what Anna, Natalie just said is, uh, remember, melatonin. So so the opening up, right? So melatonin uh, uh, is something that nobody could uh, figure out that it could be a non-animal thing. So so this is animal thing, right? So so think of the, the melatonin pills you take to, to go to bed, um, synthetic melatonin, things like this. And turns out that, that when scientists, plant scientists, were looking through the microscope and checking some uh, a molecule, um, uh, it was melatonin. And they just couldn't see it. They couldn't see it because it was not expected to be in plant tissue. <laughs> so they say, this cannot be melatonin because melatonin is, by definition, animal. Is animal melatonin. So this is something you cannot possibly see. And that's, that's to me, a, a philosophy of science issue. It's amazing how, how from the philosophy of science, you know, how, how theory-laden observations are, and you don't get to see what you don't expect to find. So it was so funny if you go to the recent history of the, of the discovery of melatonin, because it was discovered in plant melatonin that they biosynthesized their own melatonin in 1995, right? So less than three decades ago. And it took the plant community still all the way till 2003 or something, uh, so eight more years, to agree upon the usage of the term, Natalie. Mm -hmm. So the term, so they say, okay, let's add the prefix, phyto, phyto. So they say, no, plants don't have melatonin, plants <laughs> have phytomelatonin. So it's the very same thing 
But you know, in 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 our little heart, we we still retain something, you know, some essence in, in for animals. Then plants do phytomelatonin, not melatonin. That's a still animal thing, right? But but just connect the usage of melatonin to the going to bed thing. I mean, the increase and decrease in the concentration of melatonin, which is of course related to those rest uh, mm -hmm. breaks that we need, that life needs to take to repair DNA, to do you know all that stuff related to the day-night cycles. Mm -hmm. That's certainly related to any form of life. And then it's melatonin doing it in plants, but we don't want to use the same labels or even actually identify the same molecule when you get to see it. <laughs> so it's, it's that dramatic. It's like Darwin with sexual selection. He tied himself in knots because he couldn't possibly admit that females were sexually selected. <laughs> he did everything he could to try and yeah. make it work. It's like mental twister. <laughs> and then eventually couldn't get around it. Eventually, up, up to a point, you have to, okay, say, okay, yeah. that's it. I, right. I'll give up. <laughs> well, ho hopefully some, someone will give up. <laughs> Speaking of Darwin, um, he makes an appearance throughout the text. Um, mm. What role do you see his work playing? And then also, is there like, is there... Yeah, I guess what is his role and kind of why do you find yourself coming back to Darwin throughout the whole? Darwin, I mean, well, Darwin is everywhere, everywhere. You can't imagine, Kate, how much fun and the joy I had from day one. Literally, as in starting working on this book project, like when I was like on sabbatical in 2016 in Edinburgh. Like I used to go to this cafe and the street opposite the cafe from the window pane, I could see the plate on the wall, Darwin, Charles, when his brother lived here when he was in the medical school, blah, 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 in his teens. And, and you see that it's, it's true that there is a little bit of Darwin in every single chapter, all the way to the epilogue. Um, and it's a tribute that to me goes way beyond the obvious recognition that we, anyone could make to, 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 the, to the contribution of Darwin, right? And to me, it has to do with something that I am still amazed about, and is the following. We observe plant behavior with high tech. So we have all the little toys and tools and gadgets that you can imagine. Uh, from from you know the time lapse resources uh, cams uh, to you know infrared for shooting at night you know but the gear that you find in a BBC documentary. Uh, on top of that, we do the electrophysiology. So we insert electrodes. We read the recordings. We try to find out you know correlates in between the electrical activity, what flows within the plant body, and the type of overt behaviors that we observe, and yet. I am still so fascinated about what Darwin was able to see to the naked eye with no need of toys, gadgets, or expensive equipment. And that I, I, I tell my students every day in the classroom, not really, because I say, hey, look, don't you think that, because, oh, well, I have this smartphone, I'll just you know set it, set it up, 
during the weekend, start. I'll go for the weekend. Then I'll come back on Monday to the lab. I assemble the footage. Oh, wow, nice, what the plan did. And there is a great mistake. It's a huge mistake here, which is simply that we can rely on technology to unearth intelligence. And intelligence will never be revealed by technology itself. It's, by, it's revealed only by the usage we made of it, right? And, and, and I'm, I'm still, so even, put it this way, even using those tools, the best equipment you have, I'm still struggling to understand plant behavior. And when I go back to Darwin and I read his notes, his books, his incredibly you know, detailed works, I say, oh my God, how was this guy able to see all this, right? So that takes me to another point, which is fast science versus slow observation. Because by time-lapse in plants, we speed them up. So we speed them up to our scale of observation. So we, we don't have the time or the patience to sit back and try to observe them at their pace. We have to speed them up, right? Mm -hmm. So we live you know, these hectic lives nowadays. And to me, we need to go back to a little bit of that Darwinian times in which, in which time flew way slower. Um, if the plant was doing something, there was not plan, any plan B other than slowing down yourself. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. Natalie, I mean, he was, Darwin was exceptional in that he he had a clarity of thought that very few people have, I think, um, and his ability to to remain objective even in the face of his own disbelief, I think, was quite quite unusual. Um, and also the you know his his situation he as as, as Paco says is he he was free from a lot of the constraining factors that science faces now he, he there's not this sort of pressure to publish publish um, and so he was he was able to take the time and develop over a very long durée over the course of his life these these ideas um, and I think also that the the question of meaning comes in as well in terms of he he worked in in words and I think when you're thinking about I ideas of behavior and and what's going on inside an organism i think having uh having the ability to use words very precisely and very clearly opens up meanings as well so i think uh, there's a, there a lot of different aspects of darwin which i think were quite exceptional um but um yeah i remember i when i was when i was younger i, I wrote a kind of a fifteen thousand word synopsis of the origin of the species and I remember just being blown away and wondering why everyone hadn't read this because it was just the best book ever. I mean, there's some really boring, <laughs> but, but a lot of it's just like it's it's just mind-blowingly good. Um, and you know, while there are obviously faults in his theories, it's an exceptional piece of thinking. It is amazing. It is amazing. Yeah. Words have come up time and time again, and I I'm interested both of your works seem so interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary. How essential is that? And has it been incredibly fruitful to work with people from mm. very different disciplines? Mm. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Oh, I, I mean, it, it couldn't proceed otherwise. It's got to be truly, truly interdisciplinary. Sometimes, um, 
um, we use many labels interchangeably, like like, like transdisciplinary or interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary. Some people say anti-disciplinarily, um, and I, 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 regardless of the details in you know the fine grain details in between those labels, what I truly think that that works um, by by teaming up in in such a way is to exploit what I like to call uh, following um, uh, Sidney Brenner uh, and. Nobel Prize winner, and in, he had a book called uh, uh, "My Life in Science," I think, mm-hmm. um, and he 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 talks about the power of ignorance. And you know, I I I here in Spain, I do these these talks for secondary school kids, and I tell them about the power of ignorance, how fruitful, how helpful it is. And they go nuts. They, oh, yeah, sure. Did you see, teacher? Did you hear Paco? He says we've, we've, we're okay being ignorant. <laughs> and, and they are amazed. They are, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they say, you see, we don't need to study anything. <laughs> and I, I think that the power of ignorance understood within the context of transdisciplinary research pays off incredibly well. Because, because by joining forces, by teaming up with all people from all sorts of you know backgrounds and, and, and approaches and, and you know uh, not again not just the sciences but but the arts the humanities and, and by doing that I think that is the only way in which in which ignorance pays off so when you are stuck within your field and reach out for somebody else's expertise, again, not expecting them to provide the answer, but to rethink what the question was transdisciplinarily, right? So so that's something that in my case, I've seen the actual um, um, outcome, concrete outcome when I've teamed up with with, uh, roboticists, for example. so, so, so the, the project that we had uh, finishing this year in, 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 in the lab was um, a project on plant intelligence for robotics and AI. So how to inspire robotics and AI uh, algorithms with, with um, the very ideas of plant intelligence, right? So putting together the biology, the philosophy, uh, the robotics and AI with engineers, right? And, um, and basically, the take-home message is that when you're stuck with the problem and you have, you know, I have 20 engineers working on this problem. If you have 20 engineers who are stuck on a problem, don't hire engineer number 21. <laughs> you are wasting the money. You need to reach out. So get one guy from the, from, from the arts. Get someone from, from another completely different... But, by completely different, that, that's what I mean by about the power of ignorance. So, because somebody else will come and say, hey, did you try? Because those 20 people would never have thought, have dared, dared to think out of their, you know, comfort zone because it's what they've been educated into. So then this other person comes naively and say, hey, but why don't you try? And they, oh, shit, 
Of course, we, did, we, we never thought of that. We never thought of that because we were constrained by our orthodox frame of mind. So that's where transdisciplinary pays off. Mm. Definitely. Yeah, I think that kind of that kind of reflexivity and the ability to um, so if you put different paradigms or different different structures together, thought structures together, you're going to look at the limits of them. You're going to be more aware of being inside one or other of them, um, and you're you're going to be um, you're going to be able, as Paco says, to migrate perspectives between them. Um, I especially think between the arts and sciences, because obviously science is the, the best way we have of approximating a model of the real world, of, of the external reality. But um, especially if you're looking at subjectivity, you also need perspectives from disciplines that look at subjectivity and, and explore the subjective world, um, human and other. So um, I think it's it's both fascinating, but also absolutely necessary, as Paco says, to have a highly interdisciplinary approach. And you know what? Uh, sometimes, now going back to the philosophy of science, sometimes we are far too obsessed with the testing of the hypothesis and downgrade or undervalue the role of imagination in, in, in conjecturing in, in, in coming to terms or in thinking out of the box different working hypotheses, right? And we just think, no, no, the hypotheses are in place, let's test them. Let's just follow the scientific method and then end of the story, as if you could write the code and an algorithm would solve the problem. And a couple of weeks ago, I was, I was giving this talk uh, to, 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 to artists, dancers, musicians, so that type of profile. And, and I was insisting to them that, 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 for example, in the case of dance, one of the one of the ideas in the book, if you recall part two, when we talk about the different um, paradigms, like in cognitive science, right? So one of the points we make is that cognition is not something that happens within the head. So, so it's not intracranially solved. You need to reach out and see how the organizing couples with the environment and look at the relational aspects, the coupling of the... So the unit of analysis is the organism and the environment all together, one single unit of analysis. So we, we you are not going to find out about intelligence by cracking open your skull and seeing what's happening inside. We need to look at the relational properties of the coupling system, right? And, and I was insisting to them about these dancers, I mean, because... because um, because intelligence, plant or human intelligence, is something that unfolds in time. Mm. It has a temporal profile. Mm. Um, sometimes exploiting this idea of the importance of coming up with new working hypotheses, rather than simply talking about how we test the ones we already have. People coming from the arts, for example, performative arts, uh, they can say, oh, do you, do you realize that, that when you are dancing, for example, a choreography or a couple in the very process of, of, of in, in the actual creation of the pattern of the dance, you are generating a flow. That flow itself acquires a unity that goes way beyond the simply summing up of the individual dancers, right? So, so when they are mm, feeling the that emergent uh, connection in the actual embodiment of the pattern of you know the dance itself 
that's exactly what we claim is happening, for example, when different plants are growing together and doing things, right? So you see, sometimes those apparently simply metaphors uh, coming from, from, from works of art are not just metaphors, are what the type of intuition pumps that allow you to develop new working hypotheses. Then we'll go to the lab or to the open and test them. But sometimes it's, it's damn important that we acknowledge the role that imagination and, 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 and con the contribution made by non-scientists can have. Mm. Actually, that dance example is a really good one, isn't it? Because the, sh the shift, the two dancers together are creating a shifting environment within which the meaning of the movement is therefore changing. Mm. And that's a it sort of has has equivalences in a with a with a, a vine that's that's yeah. moving. And if the meanings of its movements shift as it as it grows, um, yeah, that's mm. another great example. As you mention, um, imagination and ignorance, and thinking about how we practice the sciences, this kind of leads into a further set of questions or question I have. Um, one of the major kind of areas of interest for a lot of people within the plant network. Um, that this podcast is hosting is education. And so oh <laughs> many are educators, um, whether in the university or, you know, through like lay people outreach. Um, I was wondering if you could talk more, especially because I was so excited that education came up in the last chapter. Um, yeah, could you talk more about um, your views <laughs> of education and, if anything needs to change in the way we approach mm -hmm. education. Did, did you say anything? <laughs> 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 oh my God. I think everything has got to change. I mean, I, I only hope so. I mean, oh my God, you, you, this is this is the education is my nightmare number one. That's the next I, book. <laughs> I, I mean it. I mean it. Oh, oh Natalie. Natalie, we have to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, really, I suffer it in, in every aspect of my life. So I suffered education when I was being raised. I suffer education now as I'm teaching my undergrads and my grad students, and I see um, their frame of mind when they enter the classroom, and all I have to do to kind of change those routines, those inertias. Mm. And I suffer it at home when I see my children uh, studying. Now they are at the university as well, and and I see the you know this model of education based on you know memorizing and parroting. It's 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 easy to be misguided because we have become so sophisticated in our pedagogy that we think that we are out of that. So some people might say now, listening to this, oh, Paco, um, you are talking about the good old-fashioned way of teaching. Nowadays, of course, we don't do that. It's not about parroting anymore. We have all these resources, educational resources, and, and kids do all sorts of things. They Come on, you are talking about the good old days. I mean, now things have changed a lot. And I say, no way. They've changed superficially. In essence, it's been a cosmetic change. In essence, it's still all the same. And 
to me, if, if as you said, it's not uh, an accident that we left up for the very last chapter, because I think that is, that is the, the next uh, stop, which is to say, hey, we've got to tackle this head on. Um, because, you know, uh, of course, there is a clear cut, you know, straight connection in between education and ethics and climate change and problems. And because, I mean, for obvious reasons, uh, if we are going to do anything about all the problems we have, uh, obvious problems, we don't need to go through them. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? And there is no other way than through education. So so I keep thinking, the more I think about it, uh, you see, um, um, somebody said once uh, that, that the right time um, to start a PhD is, so I, I tell this to the secondary school kids when I go to the, to, to the school to give talks, I say, what do you think is the right time? When, 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 is, when, when is the time ripe? for um, young people to, to get started with a PhD. Sort of like they would go like, oh yeah, sure. Um, let me think, um, yeah, maybe I'm too, I'm too young. I need to get more mature. I need to, okay, then I'll do a master. Then I'll do another master. Then I'll do a two year, whatever. Then, okay, then, yeah, I'll, I'll do a PhD when I'm 30 or whatever. I said, we are not getting this. I mean, uh, the right time is is way before primary school. <laughs> so so before before, before everything is messed up, before it's too late. And it's too late once we start uh, being educated into a system that is telling us what we have to think, how we have to do it, rather than allowing the individual to explore and come up with its own, her own solutions, to come to terms with her own way of approaching her reality, the local reality, because problems are always local. And out of dealing with local problems, we solve global ones. Mm -hmm. That's the issue. I think if you look at the radically different relationships that, that there have been to the natural world through geographically and through history, it shows you just how much flexibility there is before you start inculcating a certain attitude in, into, into kids. Um, so I think instilling a much broader understanding of other organisms from an earlier age, a much a very different attitude to humans' place in the world, is um, is definitely what we need to be doing. Um, in act actually, the practicalities of enacting that are quite a long way off. I think is the problem. Um, but uh, that the, 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 there are such different paradigms for understanding the world that that have have existed, that you know it's easily possible. But it's whether we as the adults or, you know, the, those who are designing the educational systems can start to will that change and start to enact it. And so do you think, how do you see your work with plants and some of the um, things that you've, some of the, I guess, conclusions you've reached or different steps in the process, um, how do those relate to some of the solutions or ways of approaching some of these larger problems um, mm. that the world's facing, whether it's climate change or um, economic mm. disparities, um, resource distribution, like just the list could go on. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know on, on the one hand, it's, it's 
breaking up the traditional view of the great chain of being with humans at the top that on a very basic level we still most people that is their framework for the world so you have this hierarchy of organisms and we're at the top and we're separate from everything else and special and i think that's almost gotten worse as um mm -hmm. people live in increasingly um sort of bubble-like existences um, you know, more kids can name Pokemon, uh, and these kids can name more Pokemon now than they can plants or birds, you know, in their local environment. <laughs> but that also shows the sort of inherent biophilia that that kids have. They want they want to categorize stuff and name it and understand it, but they're just exposed to an ecosystem that's digital rather than real. Um, so I think that that is on a very basic level um, one of the, one of the problems we need to change rapidly and then Papa's got a lot more a lot more ideas i can see bubbling <laughs> yeah well I, I guess um you know one thing that bothers me is when you verbalize a solution mm. i think that it's, i feel uneasy about solutions that you can express in words and say oh yeah sure i got the silver wallet here it is and i'm gonna <laughs> phrase it when you do that, I think it's the recipe to, you know, many times in greenwashing mm -hmm. attitudes or many other, you know, uh, wrong solutions to the, when you go from local to global, right? Which was your question. So, so I think that real solutions are way more indirect, are way more explicit, are more tacit, are more implicit. And, and actually, this is an example we use in the book. Uh, think of, of, of something happened to me. I experienced something, and now I felt the, how you say in English, goosebumps? Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. When, when, no, I, really, I, I felt it. Like, like when I, when I, the first time I watched uh, my octopus teacher, mm. right? That's what I meant about the difference in between explicit and implicit. I could I could read a academic book on how to treat cephalopods, how smart they are, how this, how that. And I could try to, you know, get that into, you know, memorize all those details and, and, and plan a course of action in the future and educate the next generation along the same lines. And there is something that doesn't quite work with that because it has to do with the immediate experience of any one of us. And that's not something that can be passed along the bucket, right? So that's something that can only be experienced once in the here and now. So, so there is something that I got from watching that film. That's an example, but many other uh, in similar lines. Um, and that I couldn't even verbalize it, but the truth is that if I now go snorkeling, uh, this is not to make Natalie feel envious that we can snorkel in November. Here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but if, if I go snorkeling this weekend um, and I see an octopus, which you come across them pretty frequently, I just cannot see it with the same eyes. And all I did was watch a film. I didn't read the manual. I didn't take a degree on, you know, and that's that's something that relates to what we need to rethink about how we get started from square one, some 
this idea of doing your PhD before primary school, <laughs> before it's that late. Because that way, you don't need to build up an argument walking people from premises to conclusion to say, thereby, you need to treat plants nice. Thereby, you need to... No, you just get there. Mm. Mm. Definitely. Um, as you talk about that kind of indescribable realization or interaction, um, it reminds me of another thing that the plant network is really interested in, which is this question of respect and what mm. it means to have respect for plants. Um, out of your work and your interactions, your personal interactions with plants, um, how do you understand respect? And mm. can you think of any kind of practical examples of what it looks like? Yeah. Yeah, look, uh, um, this question, as with any other question, which looks like very difficult to answer, I've found myself uh, that there is a, a, a very way, a very simple way to go about it. And the trick, you know what's the trick? To swap the terms. So change plant for animal, for example. So when people say, but how can you make sense of, of plants making choices? I say, try to think about how you make sense of animals making choices. Mm. You see what I mean? So if we, if we truly take the message that what unites us all in the tree of life starts at the very bottom at the stump of the tree, and it simply spreads all over the tree of life in different ways, different ways, but the essence is the same. So if there is awareness, if there is something with, that we call subjective awareness, it belongs to life. To be alive comes with being aware of your surroundings. Now people go nuts and say, hey, but how do you mean? I mean, are you saying that the bacteria has the mental life that I do have? No, bacteria have their life. Wouldn't know what to do <laughs> and you have yours, yeah. <laughs> so, so, but, but now, if you do the same, if you play the same game with respect to your question, it it's way simpler to respond. You see, mm -hmm. how do you come to terms with respecting plants? Well, how do you come to terms with respecting fellow humans, mm -hmm. or how do you come to terms with respecting non uh, non human animals? The the more the most obvious answer to me is. Well, don't inflict unnecessary suffering or damage, for example, right? I mean, of course, a different issue is, is how we negotiate our different, you know, there is a trade-off in between the, yeah, the needs that you need and what can be avoided. But and also, society, a, you have to draw those lines somewhere. You have to have, you know, we have to consume and therefore we have to inflict sure, damage. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. But this is neutral, for example, with respect. You know, you see, one the typical question, you know, you know, every time you give a talk on plant intelligence, the very first question always is, I'm a vegan, now what? Right? That type of question. And and if you think about it, this uh, line of reasoning of think simple, like like I mean, how do you think about the way you pay respect to other fellow 
organisms in the tree of life, right? Um, if, if, if you think about it um, um, in those terms, um, and uh, no, I, lost, I lost the thread. What, I was gonna say something else. Uh, um, thinking about the respect in vegans. Oh, um, oh yeah, yeah, that this idea is neutral. So that, that, that what Natalie said can be drawn neutrally. So which means that there is not a default privilege stance as if, as if I'm ethically more concerned because uh, I have made this dietary choice. Vegetable as opposed to animal or what may. So what I'm trying to say is that regardless of the choices we all make, which we have to respect them all, the issue remains the same because otherwise we are not getting the idea that Planta sapiens and Homo sapiens are the same thing. So just to give you the, 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 the concrete example, uh, if we think, oh, animal bad, don't eat them, plants good. And now people, so when somebody says, I'm a vegan, now what? They appear to, in, to infer that, oh, now I have to treat plants the way I was treating animals, thereby I cannot eat them either. Now I'm gonna feed on what, stones? Um, what we are doing is not putting them all in the same basket. But if you treat them equally, literally, you don't say plants versus animals. You say life that has gone through misery unnecessarily versus life that has been treated with respect prior to getting to your plate. And then you can say, oh, maybe eating this green is unethical or I feel uncomfortable about it because it was stressed unnecessarily. I was inducing unnecessary suffering to this crop. And this chicken was raised in a, you know, uh, in a more respectful way. So, so in a sense, is I don't think it's so clear cut, so straightforward that, that one choice is the choice everybody has to make and the other is not. I think I think going to the tree of life again as such and, 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 and thinking of respect applied potentially in principle in the very same way throughout the tree of life allows us all to rethink uh, actually not just the choices we all make individually, but how to be respectful with everybody else's choices, which is another form of respect. In your daily life, um, which plants are most present for you? How do they appear? And or which plants best represent your community? Because one of the things like thinking about plants as actual community community members as opposed to kind of like being blind to them in our in our yeah. communities. Are there any in particular that in your daily life kind of stick out to you or that you resonate with? Natalie, that one is for you. <laughs> um, well, I'm I work surrounded by plants all the time. So I and since working on this book, I have felt like <laughs> <laughs> they were they were seeing more than I realized they were seeing um so they um yeah I've got some lots lots of big big diverse forest around me um oh uh that's that is a difficult question um mm. I I have one <laughs> do you shall I shall I jump in 
Yes, jump in. <laughs> because because actually, I know I I I just thought about it because I can see it right now through my window in my in my back garden. And it's weeds. You know why? Because we don't, I don't think we really understand weeds. Mm -hmm. um, um, they are all over the place and they are doing damn well everywhere. So there is not a place on planet Earth where you don't find, so, so with community, human communities hanging around, that there is not a fight in between them and weeds, right? And I find that intriguing because we always think of patterns of coevolution in terms of guys cooperating, like, like you know, the pollinator and the flower and, and these sort of things, or the way we've, we've, you know, started with agriculture a few thousand years ago and, and how we've, you know, sculpted their phenotypes to feed us and why the tomato or the corn looks so nice and big and tasty that we've been, you know, uh, selecting and doing things to crops uh, for thousands of years. But weeds have been um, fellow travelers along all those times. And to me, I first because I, 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 I you know they are conquering my, my my garden. So my first response would have been, oh, orange trees, because I have all these orange trees here in my garden. And you know how now that the winter is starting, it's so amazing when you get up in the morning and I make my own, I squeeze my orange juice out of the three oranges I pick from the tree. And I take that morning orange juice straight from the tree, squeeze it and drink it. And I, I couldn't be more grateful to the orange tree, right? But then you know what happens to me? That there are all these weeds who are climbers next to the orange tree. And in my heart of hearts, I would want to pluck them. Say, hey, stop messing up with my orange tree. But I cannot because I love to see how they're trying around the, the orange tree. So, so what I do is I let them do it. So I have these, these uh, wild uh, climbers, white weeds, really, 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 you know, they, they go all over the place. They are really invasive. And what I do is I put this ladder and, and in my garden and time-lapse time -lapse the weed. So I, I have these, these vines, invasive weeds, conquering the orange trees and, and, and I do time-lapse them. Because here what you are time-lapsing is the dynamics. This dance we were talking about, this choreography, there is a dance in between domestic and wild plants. And that's really amazing because, because who is smarter than someone who is passing its genes despite we have been trying to eradicate them for thousands of years. So they are doing so well, and we've been fighting them for thousands of years. And in some so cases, we help them a lot as well, because we, we spread them around, or we create environments yeah, that are easy for yeah. them to invade. And somehow, some of the weeds are species that have escaped from domesticity as well, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so to me, weeds are, are really special, really yeah. special. You know, just, just one, one, one more thing I can help sharing with you. In the 90s, when I, I, I was doing my PhD in Glasgow, um, 95, I was, uh, you know, this, this little flat, uh, my partner and I rented, and, and there was this, this old 
landlady, you know, uh, she would come to pick the, the rent every month and from her village coming to Glasgow. And, um, and I, I had this weed in the middle of the garden. So the, the neighbors would have the roses, you know, the normal, you know, can you picture the, the, the British garden? And my garden was nothing but weeds, but not just weeds. I would cultivate them. So I would put the stones around the weed. I would clear around. So I, I would treat the weed as a domestic plant. Technically, one they, they weren't weeds anymore, though, were they? Yeah, yeah, that's the point. Yeah, you that, weeded that, them. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. But the funny thing, the funny thing is that the landlady would come to pick the rent, and then she thought, being a Spaniard or whatever, she thought, "Oh, Paco doesn't get it. He might think this is a local plant, and he doesn't get this is something to be plucked." And then she would go like, "Paco, this is a weed." So she, she thought I didn't even understand the term. So we, so she would go like weed, like saying. <laughs> She was, she was like saying, for God's sake, go and look it up in the dictionary. And then I said, no, I know, I know, a weed, a weed, I know, I know, but I'm looking after it. I water it, I prune it. So that was, I mean, so I think weeds are, you know, we need to rethink our relation with weeds. <laughs> That's brilliant. Definitely. So, well, thank you both so much um, for joining us on the podcast. It has just been such a pleasure to talk with both of you, Natalie and Paco. Um, we'll include links in the show notes um, so that people can follow up on your work, hopefully get a copy of the brilliant text, Plants as Sapiens. And I can't wait to read the next one on education. Gotta <laughs> <laughs> get started. <laughs> oh my God, Natalie, we have a problem. <laughs> we need a holiday first. <laughs> For more information on the Networking with Plants in the Anthropocene, write to us at networkingwithplants at gmail.com. The music piece is kindly offered to us by artist Miley's. Miley's is a sonic artist, immersive ecology designer and clean energy ambassador. Merging art and technology, she creates music experiences that express the voices of plants and of the other inhabitants of the earth.